Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have as my guest James Muir. James is the author of the best-selling book, The Perfect Close, the number one book on uh, Amazon worldwide on closing, and he is the founder and CEO of Best Practice International. James, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. It's great to be here. My pleasure. James, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure. I've been in sales for 30 years. I've served in every capacity from a subject matter expert all the way to an individual contributor, all the way to a executive VP. My background's mainly in the B2B healthcare space. I've been lucky enough to be able to sell to and speak for some of the biggest names in healthcare and technology. The irony of that is that I'm actually an accidental salesperson. I actually got drafted into sales. Years ago, uh, when I was managing a RevCycle business, I used to go out with the sales teams as a subject matter expert. And I used to say, hey, man, I hope I'd never have to do that. <laughs> and here I am. But, but the, the funny thing is, actually, what caused me to fall into sales is we lost our top sales guy. And our CEO came to me and said, hey, we need you in sales. And boom, that's how I ended up in sales. And initially, it was pretty rough. But in the long run, it turned out I'm perfect for sales, right? It's exactly what I should be doing. But I didn't know that at the time. And uh, it's also, by the way, how I know that uh, great salespeople are born, they're not made, because that's what happened to me. Okay, let's start out with an argument then, because I fundamentally disagree with that. I think you have a wiring a disposition towards it. But having trained thousands of people who are not natural born salespeople, they can learn it, but they have to have the right kind of mindset. There's no getting around that. But no one pops out of their mother's womb able to close or able to qualify. So your thoughts? Yeah, I think we're both on the same page there. So I, I've managed sales teams for many, many years. And what I can tell you is I, I will seek to find certain people are genetically more predisposed to the certain, certain skill sets that they have, or maybe it's environmental by the time they get to me. But uh, I think they are already have more potential at, at than others at certain stages in their life. And so it's a shortcut as a manager to hire someone who's got a better propensity than another person. I don't always want to start from well, scratch. I, I'm definitely not going to fight you on that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, yeah. But, but my, yeah, my, uh, uh, my, I have been able to take people that are essentially, you know, introverted recluses that most people would consider to be horrible salespeople and, and have them become top performers. And so I would put myself in that same category. I am uh, essentially an introvert uh, at, you know, at nature. I, maybe I'm an ambivert, but, I think that uh, it, the assumption that the, there's this set of criteria that all uh, salespeople have to match in order to be successful, I don't believe that to be the case. I do think that there are certain skills that help. But I, like I said, I've seen people that are very introverted uh, be very successful at sales. So it doesn't necessarily uh, boil down to their personality, just their natural propensity. I'd agree with that. I mean, some of the best salespeople that I know are very heavily introverted, um, but they are methodical. They're systematic. They treat it like a science. They treat it like a profession. And um, one of my big gripes with the profession is that it's hideously unprofessional. I think lots of people turn up and they wing it. They are functionally illiterate because the last book they read was in school and they don't treat it like a discipline that uh, requires constant improvement. And then I compare the best salespeople that I know, and they're always learning, they're always reflecting, they're consistently looking in the ugly mirror, and um, they're never satisfied with their performance. Uh, there's always a way that they could be better. So t tell me this, closing is one of those skills that everyone asks for in job descriptions. But by and large, your average seller is little better than an order taker. Um, and they turn up, they spray and pray, quote and hope, and they've got little or no control over the conversation. At what point does the closing process begin? Well, so there's a lot of different definitions of closing out there. Some definitions are something like the magic thing you say that gets people to buy your stuff. And that paints the close as a sort of this all or nothing type of scenario. And what the data shows in the research is that closing can't be, selling can't be treated that way. What happens in nine out of 10 sales interactions is you either move the sale forward in a small way, or you get something called a continuation where the sale doesn't really end, but it doesn't really go anywhere either. It's and so, 
Yeah, correct. And so, uh, and, and I didn't invent those terms. That's a, those are both Neil Rackham terms that he created after doing a bunch of research. Actually, it was at the time, it was the largest uh, sales research study ever done. It involved over 35,000 face-to-face sales interactions. But anyway, I just use his definition, which is anything that puts the customer in a uh, situation where involving a commitment. And because we know that nine out of 10 sales interactions don't end in a win or a lose, that's not what happens. You don't just win or lose every time you meet. You, there's some small progress that's made, especially in complex sales. Then I talk about closing in the sense that all the little steps that add up to the big step where, where they're finally uh, executing some kind of a contract or you're getting some kind of an order. So I, I don't know if that clarifies okay. things. That, that, well, that does. And that aligns very closely with my definition as well. In my world, it's always been about contracting for a next step and reaching mutual agreement. And um, I, I think when people talk about closing and when they recruit for closers, what they're typically looking for is so, uh, someone who can trap the buyer into making a decision. And that's not really how buyers buy. In fact, um, if you operate like that, you're likely to create resistance. Whereas what you're talking about is about reaching mutual agreement at every step. And if you've reached an impasse, then to discuss it so that you can either overcome it or you can both walk away with your dignity intact. 100%. In fact, an interesting stat that kind of falls in line with that is that about 50-90% of all sales encounters end without anybody asking for any kind of commitment at all. And it varies a little bit by industry, but 50% is the low number. And that is like a just a mind-boggling statistic to me um, that, you know, that fewer than 50% of deals there's any sales encounters, there's no commitment being asked for. It's just mind-blowing. And mostly that's because of what you said earlier, people wing it. They don't even give any thought about what they want the outcome of the meeting to be or what the small step forward that the client might take. Well, that's really important to build upon because if you haven't done your thinking beforehand, then chances are at a physiological and a psychological level, you're going to revert back to your primitive brain. And that essentially means you go into freeze, flight, or fight which inevitably is going to end up in a a worse outcome than you could possibly have had through planning, preparation, rehearsal, and being clear up front. And one of the things that I learned over the last 20 years, which has taken a while to sink in, is if you agree at the beginning what you want to have happen by the end, and both sides are working towards that, you effectively get um, the prospect to uh, walk out of the goal math, and it's both you and them kicking into an open goal against their problem. But so many salespeople seem to set up this adversarial relationship that results in impasses and stalls and pushback. So why is it that managers continuously uh, encourage their salespeople into acts of idiocy and uh, suicidal (laughs) self-sabotage? Well, if I had to boil it down to a word, I would call it quota, right? And I was just having this conversation yesterday. It's that how many people out there have tried to con- trade margin for timing, right? They're like, yeah. oh, hey, I'm willing to give away some margin if I can get my deal in, in sooner, right? And I, by the way, I'm totally against that. My advice is against that. But I've worked with publicly traded companies for, geez, two decades. So I do understand that the money recognized this quarter may very well be may be worth more to the company than that exact same revenue recognized the following quarter. So I've you know, had years of executives trying to get us to you know, accelerate sales by whatever means possible. But the, the irony is that timing issues are not pricing issues. And so they're, they're different, right? I've had scenarios where I've had a, I had a sales guy who came to me and said, hey, I want to offer a discount to this client to get him to close by the end of the quarter. And I said, okay, well, why don't you just say, you know, does it make uh, sense for us to see if we can do something special for you? Get everything, if we can get everything wrapped up by the end of the quarter. And he goes, well, what's the something special? <laughs> I'm like, well, we got a lot of things we could do. Let's just find out if the timing works and then we'll figure out what the concessions are, right? And he goes, well, what kind of things can we do? And I go, yeah, we got lots of options. We could play with the licensing. You know, we could play with the maintenance. We could even get a user. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. He goes, well, can we, can we discount? I'm like, yeah, discounting is one of the options. Let's just find out if the timing works and then we'll see, right? And so I actually had him write down this phrase, right? Uh, which uh, is basically, does it make sense for us to see if there's something special? We can do something special for you if we can get everything wrapped up by the end of the quarter. 
And the reason you do it that way is because then you don't have to telegraph what the concession is. Absolutely. You're just trying to find out the timing without doing it. Because here's the deal. If you say anything about any kind of concession, you're giving it. Right? As soon as they hear that, that, you, that there's a concession available, you can just count on having to give that. And so I see this guy later in the hallway and uh, he's looking all dejected. And I go, How, well, how'd your call go? Right? And he goes, oh, it's terrible. This guy got all mad at me. And he was, that we, he was mad that we hadn't given him our best price. And now I have to go create a brand new proposal. And I'm like, whoa. That is not usually what happens. Why, why did he get mad? He goes, well, he was mad that we hadn't already given him our best price. And, um, and, and, uh, and so he was, you know, wanted me to go get a new proposal. And, um, and I'm like, man, so he immediately assumed that something special meant a discount. And he goes, yep, now I got to go to a you know, new proposal. He, he marches off. And we, at the time, we actually had this calling system that would let us review these guys' calls. Yeah. And so I thought, <laughs> I'm going to go listen to that call, right? And here's what I heard him say. Instead of saying, does it make sense for us to see if we can do something special instead of that? He's, he says, if you can close before the end of the quarter, I can get you a bigger discount. And that is wholly, wholly different than what I instructed him to say. Anything that you said. It, exactly. And I, I asked him about that later. But as I listened through on this call, right, I could tell that this guy was sold and he did get mad. But what he said is, he said, my board of directors doesn't even meet till the 15th of next month. And I haven't even given them the proposal that I have now to them. And this was supposed to be your best and final offer, right? So, and I could tell that the, the guy wasn't mad. Um, he, he was just mad that he, he didn't think he could pull together an impromptu meeting in two days, right, mm-hmm. uh, for his board. And that's what made him upset. But he was completely sold. So he, here's the thing. Um, if we had not, yeah, if my guy had, had handled it differently, uh, we actually ended up getting the deal, but we got it the next quarter after his board meeting and with a bigger discount because we had to come back to him with a bigger discount because you knew it was, it was possible. But when I asked my sales guy, why, oh, why did you change it after I had you write it down? And uh, this is kind of the point is that particular variation of the perfect close, it's a two-stepper. First, figure out the timing, then figure out the concession. And Absolutely. He, he, he thought, he was making it all faster. He was being more efficient by trying to combine it all into one question. But that, that comes back to your original question. Why do managers do this? And what I can tell you is that what they're trying to do is they're trying to accelerate the timing of a deal. And so they push this dysfunctional practice of discounting onto their sales reps. And it is a crime, honestly. It is one of the worst violations of all management, in my opinion. Because in some sales, this might be... No, it's true. But I will just say, I, I have been in complex B2B sales for you know, almost 30 years. And I would say that you probably have 10 to 15% control over the timing of when a deal comes in when you're dealing with a really big company like that. So your ability to use price as a lever to get them to accelerate is, is severely handicapped. They have to go through their own internal processes in order to be able to purchase. And the best thing you can do is help facilitate them doing that on their side. Because usually it's not you slowing it down. It's usually them slowing it down in their process. Because they got all kinds of people, all kinds of stakeholders, and all that kind of stuff has to ha- happen. And you just suddenly dropping the price will not accelerate those processes. All it does is just erode your margin. Uh, absolutely. And again, in my experience, price is almost never the real issue. The minute you start talking to them about price and in particular discounting and making concessions, it's normally catalyzed by fear or scarcity in the salesperson's pipeline. The simplest solution to discounting is prospect better and more frequently. If you have a full pipeline, you don't have to make these stupid concessions that are unilateral, so they're only from one side, so you're not getting anything of any real value back in return. All you're doing is you're positioning that I lied to you about my price in the first case, which is exactly what your uh, your customer in this case uh, was thinking. And the net result of that is that you create an adversarial relationship with them. They don't trust you. And part of the problem here is the minute you're caught in a lie, someone may forgive you, but they can never forget which means that every interaction going forward, I put money on it. Every time he dealt with that salesperson in the future, there was always that nagging doubt. And so he would squeeze him just a little bit harder. Yep. It also trains customers to seek end a quarter, end a month discounts because they know that this dynamic exists. You've trained them. 
right? You trained them by doing that. I, I remember when I uh, very first got into selling, um, I uh, used to keep track of my uh, deals on a whiteboard. That's how old I am. And, yeah. um, and this one quarter, our this management calls. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> that's even go. That's going back even farther. Yeah. Um, they call up. They say, "Hey, yeah, we're having a tough quarter. You need to use whatever means you can, right? Discount. I want you to offer discount to all ten of these deals that I had on my board. And one of them was close to closing. The rest were somewhere in the middle. And uh, so I offered them discounts. I told them all, hey, you know, if you can close by the end of the quarter, we can get you this discount. But if you don't, you don't get the discount, right? They, it's clear to them that they're not going to see, see that discount if they don't close by the end of the month, right? So what do you think happened? One deal closed, right? One deal closed. The others didn't. And then they expected you to give the discount anyway. Boom, exactly what happened. And that is exactly how that whole something special variation was born. I thought, man, this is the craziest dynamic I've ever seen in my life is, you know, you offer a discount to try to get timing, but then you don't actually even get the timing that you want. And then you have to give the discount again next quarter. And then your margins are eroded. And then my commissions are eroded. And then we end up training the customer to seek and a quarter discount. It was like, this is the most catastrophic practice ever. And yet, like a roller coaster, almost every publicly traded company goes through this exact same drill every single quarter, where by the end of the quarter, we're offering discounts again. And then, you know, after two two times of that, every customer knows they just need to wait till the end of, end of the quarter to get the best deal. And suddenly, all of your margins are eroded. It's just a, a ter- terrible practice. It's awful. I, I had a client who came up with a beautiful approach to this. And she trained all of her reps to say to customers as they were coming to the end of the quarter, well, we could discount, but tell me something. If we go ahead now, compared with at the end of the quarter, who do you think will be working on your project? And they had a little think. So, well, look, if there are 15 companies ahead of you, which there will be, who do you think will be working on your project then? Okay. So pay our price and you'll get all of my A players and no delay. And their sales went up over 90% that quarter when they implemented that. It's just now, understanding the reality of it, right? And what's the hidden cost of discounting? You know? You're just about to spend $17 million on an ERP system. You want to make sure it's done well. What you're not looking for is a few cents on the dollar in terms of a saving 3% here, 10% there, you're buying the outcome. You're not buying the product. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, I want an ERP system. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, no, no one wakes up in the morning saying, I want to buy a wellhead for, um, um, because I want to drill oil. They're, they're, they're trying to make a living. And the, the, what we sell facilitates that. So salespeople need to understand that you you have to get a clarity about what the desired outcome is from the customer. If you don't understand that, then it's very difficult to actually align yourself with what their intent is. And this brings me to another really interesting uh, conversation. I interviewed a lady called Patty Hatter, who's uh, head of customer success for Palo Alto. And she's implemented a process of outcome-based pricing. So you have a cafeteria um, menu, and you can buy outcomes A, B, and C for X tens of thousands of dollars. You can get outcomes A, B, C, D, E, F for Y uh, dollars, and A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P for Z dollars. Now, uh, in doing that, they're buying the outcome. They get the result that they want, and they're happy to pay premium because people are more willing to pay money in the future than they are willing to pay money today. The psychology of this is really potent. And they managed to increase sales by 93% in one quarter. Now, Palo Alto is no slouch of a company. Right. Then to be able to do that is just stunning. But you've got to think as the customer. And this is where I think so many salespeople fail because they think about themselves. They sell selfishly and they think people buy their product. So in terms of preparing salespeople, to have grown-up commercial conversations with their customers in order that they can move towards that perfect close. What's your advice to managers in terms of training, coaching, and development to make sure that salespeople are equipped 
to have those conversations. Wow. Well, you have to start at the beginning and the beginning is mindset. Well, so many salespeople have the wrong mindset about um, what selling really is. Um, so many salespeople think that selling is about persuasion or convincing or even manipulating, when in reality, it's just selling. It's just serving, actually. I usually uh, try to shift people's paradigms that way. I'll give you an example. I, I worked with a, a company where all of their account managers that had been support people suddenly were drafted into sales and they were all giving quotas. And so I went in to go train these guys. And um, they, at the very beginning, they're all saying, well, James, how can, I, how can I go face my customer again with my hand out now that I've turned to the dark side? I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. We're not going to have a very good training session today until we can get their head turned around, right? And, and, um, and so I gave them a, 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 I told them a story. And uh, I work in the healthcare space. And um, years ago, there was a, a baby that was born named Kaiba Gianfrido. And he was born with a tracheal defect. And basically, after he reached about six weeks old, he, he'd stop breathing almost every single day. His, his parents were doing CPR on him almost every single day. Wow. And can you imagine what that would be like as a parent, right? Do you think oh, they in any sleep at all, right? Knowing that at any minute, your kid might just stop breathing and die. And of course, you know, the baby, right? Kaiba, is, it's just, the whole, whole story is just tragic. And they saw a ton of doctors, but they just didn't have any answers because it was a birth defect. Right. And so they thought, oh, well, one of these times they're just not going to catch it and he's not you know, going to make it. And eventually they got to this guy in Michigan called uh, Dr. Green at, at CS Mott's uh, Children's Hospital. And he had developed this, uh, this biodegradable 3D printed medical splint that might be able to be put on Kaiba's trachea and maybe save his life. But it wasn't FDA approved, couldn't use it, brand new technology, couldn't use it, never been on a reimbursement schedule, right? right. Nothing. And so he went to some great lengths to try to use an emergency provision at the FDA to maybe use this technology to try to save him. And, uh, and fortunately, they approved it. So they did the procedure for the first time, not on an on a adult like they had planned on, but on an infant. And as it turned out, that, that procedure was a success. That biodegradable 3D printed medical splint saved Kaiba's life. I share that. You know, everybody, when we hear that story, we're all like oh, grateful to call ourselves part of humanity. We say, man, if I could save a life that way, I would do it without hesitation. And then I let him know, did you know there was a sale here? The guy that actually made that sale was not Dr. Green. His name is Scott Hollister. Uh, the the uh, CD scans, the uh, MRI scans that made the 3D printing possible cost money. The 3D printing materials to print with, the procedure, all of that had never been on a reimbursement schedule before. That guy, Scott Hollister, got all of that, made all of that happen. And then I asked him, now, is anybody unhappy that a sale was made here? Right? Well, no, of course not. Right? We're all grateful that a sale has ha happened because it saved somebody's life. It saved Kaiba's life. Right? And then I ask him now. Let me ask you this: Why do you see that sale different than the kind of sale you're doing right now? Why do you see that differently? And right? And they and they, they sat there and cogitated for a little bit on that. And and the answer is, you can connect the dots. You can see the the benefit of the sale. Right? Without a sale, that child's life would would have been lost. We wouldn't have had that. 3D printed medical splint to save his life. And so those really dramatic examples help us to see what selling really is, which is serving, it's helping another person. And so that usually gets people who, whose mindset is thinking it's self-serving. It's about me. I'm trying to get something to, I'm trying to help somebody. It doesn't always work, but it usually shifts the paradigm into understanding, hey, what we're really trying to do is help someone the same way you'd help somebody cross the street. And so you need to get off you, get off your product, and focus 100% with the customer about how you can help this person. And that might involve your product. Let's hope so. But it might not always. And sometimes you'll end up just referring to somebody else, you know, maybe somebody who can do the job better for them. But if you go into those scenarios, tabula rasa with a blank slate, just thinking how you can serve, not only will you sell more, that's what the data shows, but you'll actually, you'll have a lot more fun doing it because you're not leaning into it so hard. And you can look yourself in the mirror without feeling bad. The problem is that most people confuse servitude with service, and it's anything but. As this pandemic took hold in March, April, I saw lots of salespeople and lots of people all over LinkedIn saying, oh, you shouldn't be selling now. And I fundamentally disagree. I think that was the time to double down. I certainly did. And I feel really strongly that if I am in a position to help, I have a moral obligation to do that. And in the midst of this pandemic, when people's businesses were tanking, 
pipelines fell off the cliff, deals were being stalled. They needed my help more than ever. And it was at that point that putting uh, your foot down on the accelerator meant that you were there for people when they needed you. If you couldn't help or the timing was wrong or whatever reason uh, for not proceeding, that's fine too. Um, but it, under no circumstances should you ever feel guilty uh, about being in sales. We are a force for good and nothing happens and nobody gets paid. No one has a roof over their head uh, if salespeople are not out there selling. I think the problem is that the profession has earned the stigma of being just fractionally less vile than politicians and lawyers. There's no reason for it. it. It's an incredibly noble profession when done well. I've been blessed to have um, spent time with, trained with, worked with, interviewed some of the best salespeople on the planet. And they're decent people. Yes, they make a, a good living, but there's no harm in that. They're helping people to achieve their outcomes. And they never sell when they shouldn't. And that's the other part. You have to have a strong moral compass. And I think you also have to have the courage to be able to stand up to your management and challenge them and say, no, I'm not going to push them because I know that the timing is wrong and all it will do is damage our relationship and it will, we will be paying the price for it for as long as they are a customer and possibly even longer. Yeah, when I was a regional VP, I would get these directives from executive management to do exactly that, right? Hey, tell your guys to discount and do all this stuff. And I would just quietly ignore the request and we would just the thing is, my experience is that salespeople run about as fast as they can run uh, on deals. Now, they can definitely get better at their craft, but they generally are not the problem, right? It's usually, it's usually there's a process they're not understanding on the customer side that's slowing it down, at least with, with complex business sales that, we, um, that I tend to do. I would shield them from that, having been uh, the individual contributor being the victim of that, right? Where... You go out and stupidly try to do what they tell you to do, these managers, because they, they're, they're so bad that the only lever they know how to use is the price lever, which is a bad lever. It's not even that effective of a tool in order to, I mean, there's way other things, uh, many other things that clients will value more than the price if you would just listen to what they are actually trying to do. I think you nailed it. I think every really great salesperson realizes in their life at some point that you can get everything you want as long as you help other people get what they need. And as soon as they authentically believe that and then adopt that into their whole mindset and persona, then they, they reach a whole new level. And literally every sales expert that I've talked to has this moment, this sort of this epiphany in their life where they get that. And then that's what lets them get to the next level. And when you do that, when you actually live that, you're operating in a different uh, framework. People who are operating in that negative framework operate from in TA, there's something called the drama triangle, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. Whereas people who operate from the winner's triangle, which means that you are vulnerable, it means that you're nurturing and empathic, and also you're assertive, which means that you have to be willing to face the risk that someone will not buy. You need to be ready to challenge them. You need to be respectful. But you also need to understand that they buy for their reasons, not yours. They don't care about your quota. They don't care about your share price. And they really don't care what the hell your manager thinks. So just trying to squeeze them and push them into a corner and bribe them into buying is largely going to backfire on you. So as a salesperson, if you're listening to this, please heed James's advice here, because it is absolutely on the money. I've worked with thousands of salespeople. My typical client, historically, when I was in the training business, grew by 300 to 1,200% in their first year of working with me. And it wasn't difficult to do by, just by stopping them doing acts of stupidity. <laughs> when you think about it, you, know, you, you touched on the really important point that 50 to 90% of sales interactions do not end with some clear commitment to move forward. Well, the statistics on this are really depressing. The average is seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, at least three to four of those would be down to the fact that the salesperson has not agreed with the buyer as to what the next step is. They agree to leave 
and probably go away and do some work unilaterally, like, for example, sending a quote, writing a proposal, doing a demo, doing a proof of concept, all at the company's expense, which eats into your margin. You know, the three highest hidden costs in every business I've ever come across, wrong hires, hidden cost of sale, and hidden cost of RFPs. And if you eliminate those three things, miraculously, your profit margin increases. Like taking the roadblocks off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, you've touched on it as well. You know, a manager has five critical functions on every job description of all managers. Hire the best people. If you hire well, 95% of your management problems disappear. Get the best out of them. That means clear expectation setting right at the outset in the recruitment process. Then in the pre-onboarding and onboarding, training, coaching, mentoring, accountability, rehearsal. Then make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And one of the things that frustrates the living hell out of me is the amount of money that uh, organizations spend on great technology used poorly um, because they, they sacrifice efficient, uh, effectiveness for efficiency. Um, and you know they, they have between half a percent and six percent close rates on marketing qualified leads coming through the funnel. The next thing is clear the roadblocks. Help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And also be inclusive. You have to listen to what your salespeople are telling you. And you have to listen to what your customers are telling you. And the thing that really flabbergasts me is how few managers actually spend time talking to salespeople's customers. Because that, that's how you get to coach your people better. So let's go into the perfect close then. Do, do you mind giving us an outline of the framework? Sure, sure. Well, so maybe we should start at the beginning, uh, what you said a second ago, which is upfront of com commitment. So you, you might want to think before you even walk into a meeting, what do you want to happen, right? <laughs> what do you want to, the outcome of this meeting to be? And what I would say is you should, with a little bit of thinking, you know, um, have an ideal advance, which is the best possible outcome, and then a couple of backups, right? Just in case your ideal advance turns, you know, proves to be unrealistic for some reason. And if you've got that prepared, um, then you're, you know, you're ready to use the perfect close. And there's really just two questions to the perfect close. It's very often that you only need one. And that, that first question is some variation of, does it make sense for us to X? Where X is our ideal advance, okay? And maybe I should just, just give a little confidence to your listeners here is that there's a company called Gong.io. And what Gong.io does is they do call analytics for call centers. And so they asked the question, hey, what is the single best close? What's the most productive close that there is out there? And what I'm sharing with you right now with Marcus is hands down the best close that there is as proven by gong.io. They, they analyzed over a million calls. And what they found is what I'm sharing with you right now is used by the best performers about three times an hour. So having said that, the first question is, does it make sense for us to X where X is your ideal advance, okay? And by the way, I'm teaching the kindergarten version right now. We can upgrade this just a little bit, which we can do in a minute, okay? And if you think about it, there's only two answers they're going to give us. They're going to say yes, they're going to say no. If they say yes, awesome, you just got your advance, okay? If they say no, then we're just going to use the secondary question. And, our, and the second question is going to be some variation of, well, okay, what do you think is a good next step then? Okay. And what I can tell you after done, you know, uh, hundreds of ride-alongs is that in 90% of cases, the customer will suggest a very logical next step for where they're at in their buying process right now. Okay. So that's it. Uh, those two. What do you think? Now that's the kindergarten version. Okay. And so we can make it even better if we want to be a little bit more proactive. See, um, I, like I said, have spent a lot of time in the B2B healthcare space. It's very complex sales, lots of stakeholders. And these people buy these types of systems, like an ERP system, Marcus, once in a lifetime, right? They don't buy them very often. So they're not very good at it. And so you suggesting a next step is actually very beneficial to them. So one way we could enhance this is just to say, other clients at this stage tend to do X. Does it make sense for us to do X? And that's variation, which we call the suggestion. We're just suggesting a very logical next step that we think makes sense. Then we just throw it to them. Does it make sense for us to do that? Now, again, same thing. They're going to say yes or no. If they say yes, great. You, know, you take your step. If they say no, you're going to say, what do you think is a good next step? Or you can use the suggestion in the fallback. So instead of just throwing them the ball and say, well, what do you think is a good next step? You could say, well, you know, sometimes they do this other thing. Does it make sense for us to do that? And that's how you use your, your backups, 
right? Yeah, that's how you use your alternate advances. You just say, well, you know, sometimes clients do this other thing. Does it make sense for us to do that? That's going to give you two other chances to continue to move yourself forward without being pushy, right? Hopefully you can already tell this is very non-confrontational. It's zero pressure. People get this wrong. So I'm going to just maybe drill down for a second. The question, does it make sense, is very, very different than will you do X, okay? Absolutely. Because one is a timing question. The other is an action question, right? And so with, you know, does, in fact, if you like the word timing, does it, does it, you know, is the timing right for us to do X? That would work perfectly appropriately. It, it would work exactly the same way as does it make sense for us to do X? Because it's about the timing. And asking about the timing is very different because if they say no, they're not rejecting your course of action. They're only rejecting the core, your, your, the timing of it. And that's a big deal. If you just say, will you do this? And they say, no, oh, you are emotionally on a much, much lower level than you started with when you do that. And so the perfect close is considerably better from a, you know, where it leaves us emotionally when we ask, does it make sense for us to X? There's another version of it that's called the add-on that's uh, very, it's even better. Like if you say, hey, does it make sense for us to do X? And they say, yes, then you can add on. You can say, go to your next your next advance that you prepared. You say, well, you know, sometimes clients at this stage also do Y. Does it make sense for us to do that too? And they're either going to say yes or no. If they say yes, awesome. You can say, well, sometimes they also do Z. Does it make sense for us to do Z? And then what you do at the end of that one, right? That with the fallback, what you end with is you say, you just throw them the ball and you say, well, what do you think is a good next step? With the add-on, the last thing you ask is, are there any other logical steps we should be considering right now? And what that does is it gives the customer a chance to suggest something that's logical to them that maybe you didn't even think about. And I'll, I'll tell you a crazy story about this, Marcus. I'm working with a, a healthcare organization in Sierra Vista, Arizona, and we thought we were presenting to the wrong people. Our ideal advance was to present to the executive team who we thought were going to be part of the, the decision-making process. And so um, when it came time, I said, hey, does it make sense for us to you know, show this to the rest of your team so we can get their input and participation? He goes, yes, absolutely. That'd be a great idea, right? So I'm like, cha-ching, great. I got my ideal advance. So I, I just look at my second advance. I say, you know, a lot of times people at this stage will want to have our technical people talk to each other so we can talk about the conversion. Does it make sense for us to schedule time for our tech people to talk? He goes, yes, my guys are really worried about that. I'm like, wow, cha-ching, I got two for two, right? So I look at my third thing, right? And, it, it, and I said, well, you know, I think we've got everything we need here to create like a preliminary proposal for you all. Does it make sense for me to put, you know, sort of a preliminary proposal just so you can just see what the scope of this is? He goes, yes, that'd be a great idea. And I'm like, wow, cha-ching. I'm three for three, right? So I just throw out that last question. I say, well, all right, well, uh, is there any other logical stuff we should be thinking about right now? And he'll, you will never believe what this guy says. This will blow your mind, right? He kind of lowers his voice and he kind of looks around a little bit and he goes, well, is there any possibility we could get a copy of your standard agreement? Because our legal people can be kind of slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, on the outside, I'm cool as a cucumber, right? Well, of course, I'd be happy to get you a copy of the co-. But on the inside, I'm like, yeah, of course, right? Of course, I can send you a contract. And here's the, here's the crazy thing. What if I'd have gone in there with my ideal advance being get a contract? I bet it wouldn't have come off, right? It's like, hey, does it make sense for me to get you a contract, right? I, he'd have been put off by that. But by diplomatically pacing it at the rate that the client's ready to go, we scored an amazing four advances, one of which we never even dreamed of. And so that's the, the beauty of this whole process is we're really just going as fast as the customer wants to go. It's when we try to push them faster than they're ready to go, that's when it starts to feel like manipulation to them. And so by doing it this way, if they want to go slower, we go slower. If they want to go faster, then we go faster, right? And the perfect close and just planning a little bit before you go into that meeting lets you do that optimally so that you're helping the customer out at the pace that they want to go. Absolutely. And so again, to build on what James has said there, Buyers buy for their reasons, not your reasons. They buy at their pace, not your pace. And it's up to you to mutually agree the steps that happen throughout that sale. Now, you have to control the sale. They control the decision. And the problem is that too often salespeople are trying to control the decision. If you are respectfully and nurturingly contracting with them, what those next steps are. And you get little agreement after little agreement after little agreement. You don't need a big agreement at the end because all the agreement has happened throughout the course of the conversation. So the rule here is A, B, C, always be contracting, not always be closing. Alec Baldwin was talking complete horseshit. Um, <laughs> Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. That, that's that's right. what boiler room salespeople do. 
And they're the kind of salespeople none of us want to be associated with. So do not, under any circumstances, put pressure on a prospect to make a decision, because if you do, they will resist. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. You put pressure on them, they will put pressure back on you and resist. And you'll lose the rapport and you'll lose the trust and influence that you have earned. Because in sales, I fundamentally believe there are only two currencies, trust and influence. The money happens to be a byproduct. The sale isn't over when the money clears your account. The sale is over when the customer comes back and says, thank God we bought from you, best decision we ever made. And so you need to understand that whilst you're trying to transact and hit your quota, chances are, if you have misaligned your personal desired outcome and selfishly tried to achieve uh, the close before the customer is ready, even if you make the transaction happen, chances are they will not trust you and you will have given away your influence. Yeah, let me throw some gasoline on that. So when when we first meet a person, and I know you already know this, but uh, people make two judgments really fast in the first few seconds. And it's around warmth and competency, okay? And when, when we say warmth, what they're trying to figure out is what's your intention of this person? Are they trying to hurt me or are they trying to help me? And then, then secondly, they try to judge how, how capable are you of helping me or hurting me, right? That's what they're trying to figure out. And in selling situations, it... it more actually in, in all situations, but especially in sales situations, warmth is rated higher and has primacy. It's decided first over competency. And a mistake that salespeople make very frequently is they think that if I just prove that my thing is the best thing, they're going to buy from me. That could not be further from the truth. Let me give you an example. I, I, I was managing a guy and I had a customer call me on the phone and said, don't ever send that guy back out here again. And I said, why? What happened? He goes, that guy has commission breath, yeah. right? That's what he said. And that illustrates perfectly the principle we're talking about right here, which is that the salesperson, when they got there, the guy could tell, my customer could tell that they were not interested in the customer or helping the customer. They were just, he was just interested in what, how he could help himself. And so he lost on warmth, even if his competency was off the charts, right? And so it's important. And, it, and um, there's a whole bunch of nonverbal communication that actually communicates your warmth. There's something really interesting called mirror neurons. When you watch a movie and you get all weepy or you get excited or whatever, it's because you can relate to the person that's happening. And literally, you're feeling what they're feeling. And then uh, there's something called micro expressions. These are less than a second. There's a great show you could watch uh, from years ago called Lie to Me. me, Very interesting show that used real live examples of micro expressions that you can see from famous people in different situations to illustrate what they're doing in the movie. So it's it's really a fun show to watch. But anyway, you can't control them. They start as early as two months when people can realize micro expressions in another person. And then last, you've got something called paralanguage. And everybody knows what that is. That's like when your spouse says, you know, you say, how are you? And they go, I'm fine. And you can tell by the way they say they're fine. They're definitely not fine, right? And so um, these three things and a bunch of other things, these are all nonverbals that communicate your warmth. And so the first time you tell this to a salesperson, they go, well, how can I control all that? And here's the short answer. You can't. You can't control all that stuff. The the, the, The only thing that you can really do is have genuine intent to start with. And if you walk in- Yes, if you're if you walk in being a, the real deal, right, and just being 100% genuine, 100% present, you'll be communicating all the right nonverbal things that communicate the warmth that you absolutely have to have. What you were saying, and what is really crucial to learn, is that when the customer starts to sense that you're doing something that's either self-serving or they stop trusting you, then what they do is they withhold information, and and they don't want it because they, what they think is they think you're going to use it against them. Right. And now the whole sales process has become dysfunctional. How the heck, as a doctor, am I going to be able to give you a diagnosis if I can't, if you're not going to tell me what the symptoms are? Right. And so once you've done that and you've breached that trust, man, that like you said, they never forget. And they'll always hold their cards close to their chest. So if your sales aren't working, look in the mirror. Make sure you review your calls and ask yourself the question. If I was on the receiving end of what I just said and did, how would I respond? How would I feel? Would I trust that person? Would I feel an affinity? Would I believe that they have my best interests at heart? Or 
Are they an empty suit with commission breath? Are they somebody who is serving themselves? Are they trying to dip their hand in my pocket? Because the minute a prospect, and think about how you respond when you're being sold to by someone like that. I'm not a a big believer that you do unto others as you would have done unto uh, yourself. I think you should do unto others as they would have done unto them. Platinum Um, rule. But um, the platinum rule, absolutely. But the the problem is that far too often salespeople are so fixated on their quota, uh, the conversation they're going to have with their boss who told them don't come back without the order. Yeah, we need the every deal, every every dollar counts. And net result of that is that your emphasis, your focus, your attention is in the wrong place. It's on yourself. It's not on the user, the customer. And this is why so many sales organizations crash and burn. Uh, I remember um, there was a company in the UK called Zenith Windows. And they had this big sign painted on the front of the sales uh, floor. And it said, it's always about the money. In the salesperson's mind, it's always about the money. So what they do is they go in and they go in at 50,000 pounds, then 30,000 pounds, then 15,000 pounds, then 8,000 pounds. And they walk away with a deal at three. And all the customer thinks is, well, not. Now, from the, the customer's perspective, it's not about the money. They want a warm, safe place to, you know, it's their house. Um, and this company died, and deservedly so, because the leadership was wrong. I would imagine that that type of uh, culture would breed um, corruption, actually. If it's really all about, about the money, probably somebody embezzled, right? Because, would, hey, it's about the money. I would not be at all surprised, but the turnover rates in companies like that are massively high. And when you think about what the cost of a wrong hire is in enterprise selling, I've put together a calculator and conservatively, if you get away with 35 times salary as the price you pay for losing, making a bad enterprise hire, you're doing well. The top end is around 125 times salary. Now, enterprise salespeople, they're not cheap. You could be paying 80 to 150, 200,000 just on their base salary. Now, you multiply that out by 125 times. That's a hell of a lot of money. It's not to be flinched at or to be ignored. And the problem is culture, because I think the challenge that we've got is that so many organizations are driven by quarterly reporting. The quarterly reporting drives terrible behavior. It encourages people to do fireside sales. It encourages people to race for these discounts. And it also encourages massive turnover. And the other thing that I worry about is the overassignment of quota. You know, if we need to do 100 million and you add up everyone's quotas uh, or everyone's individual targets and they make 150 million, that tells me that there is something really bad at a leadership and a management level because they, they, you might get your 100 million, but the people who got you there are burnt out, frustrated, and probably feeling quite disloyal. So tell me this. If you were designing a sales operation from scratch, blank sheet of paper, and you were starting with culture, what would you advise people to do in terms of uh, building the right kind of sales and management culture right from the get-go? Well, one of the things we do is first we get their mindset right, and then we tell them what it is. But then a really important step that a lot of companies miss, or if you're, let's, yeah, if you're not creating it from scratch, usually what happens is you're in the middle of a company. It's not culturally going the way you want, and you're trying to change the tires while you're going down the road, which is trickier than starting from scratch. But you bring in customers that are happy, and you have them explain to your salespeople why it is that they love the product and, and why that's important. You can do the same thing, right? You could do... I could tell you how great my product is, but it's very, very different than when I have one of my clients come in and tell you how great my product is or where my solution is, right? And so one of the things that really, that I think management takes for granted is they think that just by hiring a salesperson, we have immediately bought their loyalty. They're, they immediately believe in the product. They immediately <laughs> believe that it is all solving 100%, right? And that there's no doubts there. And that is not the case. And they are silently transmitting and conveying, communicating to the client 
any doubts that they might have in the product or solution. So the very one of the very first things you have to have is first uh, teach them that selling is serving, and then next show them that your solutions actually make people's lives better. So that when they're actually talking to a customer, they are conveying authentically that their their lives are going to be better. And I've even gone one step further with some of my clients, and we create an internship where the salesperson actually spends a week or maybe even a month with the client fill, filling a role that is related to the product or solution. And, and then they can speak with authority when they're speaking to a prospect. When I did this, right? When I, when I did this as in this role, right? And my internship or whatever, th- then they can speak with authority instead of saying, oh, this guy said this, this guy said, they can say, I did this. I know exactly how it works because I was doing it. And, uh, and then they can also speak to the results that that exact client where we did the internship happened, right? And that client ends up becoming a wonderful reference, by the way. So there's a huge strategy there where because I've got my salespeople going, revolving through their uh, company as an internship, there's an immediate connection. And so I always have referenceable clients, certainly that one, but uh, you, you don't do an internship with just one place if you can uh, set it up. But anyway, the point is, is that, the salesperson starts to really, really understand the customer's business and how the solution actually produces the result that they're promising the client. Like you said, people don't buy products. They buy the result of that product, right? And so once you've done all these things, you're like 80% of the way there because they get that they're just helping. And now all of this hesitation, oh, I don't want to prospect because I feel like I'm screwing the customer if they buy my stuff. You, you're never going to get very much activity out of a person if that's their mindset. But if, on the other hand, if they understand that if they only knew that we could solve this problem for them, if, if they would just listen to me for a few minutes, I could really help you, right? That's the attitude that we need to get. But that won't happen unless they become completely convinced and understand how the product does that. And so many people, they get it wrong. I mean, they do product training, but they do it all internally. And the, the, the thing is, it really needs to happen from the outside in rather than the inside out. Because if we do it all in a vacuum, there's still always this, you know, this doubt that, oh, well, I'm just getting told the party line here and inside. Does it really work that way? But when a customer says it, then they know it's true. And you've touched on a point which I think is a great place to end, which is that you need to think as the user. You need to think as the customer. You don't think about them. You think as them. And if you start from that premise, then you're able to be genuine, completely authentic. And not only that, but you have their best interests front and center. And that projects out and you get reflected back trust. They will allow you the influence because they know that you have their best interests at heart. And therein lies the crux of it because most salespeople, do not do anything close to that. And as James said, product training, largely waste of time. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and bought the features and benefits of what you're offering. They're interested in the outcome. How are you going to help me achieve my outcomes? So, uh, James, this has been really fabulous. Thank you. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I've always struggled with the same stuff, which is work-life balance. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I would just say that, you know, early on in my career, I, uh, I would spend five days a week on the road, right? And so I missed the first couple of years of my, my kids growing up, and uh, I regret that. I can never get that back. So I would just say, you need to just balance it out just a little bit so that you don't, you know, so you still have a family to come back to. <laughs> but I, it's still a challenge to this day because I really get a lot of satisfaction out of work. I do. So it's, it's, it's the trick is just kind of balancing all that. So I'm giving the right amount of time to everybody. I, for any of those that have fallen in the same mistake, I would, I would just say that there's this myth that we learned about in the 80s called quality time. And I would just say there is no such thing as quality time. There's only time. If you're not spending time with your family and with the people that you care about, you you will regret it. If even though business, we we don't we don't live to work. We work so we can live. But I will say, it, when you're getting when you're when you're when you get a lot of satisfaction out of work, it's sometimes hard to figure out where work and play ends. Right. I struggle with this as well, and um, learning how to say no gracefully is really important. And learning to say no 
is vitally important because when you say yes to something, you're probably breaking a, an unspoken promise to somebody else or even a commitment that you should be sticking to. I think sales is it's a wonderful profession. It's a really satisfying uh, job. However, you are not a salesperson. That's your role function. And who you are is determined by the promises that you keep to the people that you care, care about. And I think all too often we forget that someone who we care about pays the negative price for our positive payoff. You've got to be yep. careful of that. Really important. I think it's especially hard for people that are can do almost anything, right? I mean, if someone, hey, will you do this? Well, we know you're perfectly capable of doing it. That's why they're asking you to do it, right? And so it's really easy to take on too much stuff. And so uh, I agree with what you said, 100%. Excellent. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can advise the idiot James, age 23, with one choice bit of advice that he would have probably ignored. What would it be? (laughs) I would say that it's, Intent matters more than technique does, and I, we've we've talked about that. You know, to, we haven't said it that way, but we, but that's essentially the theme of most of what we've talked about today. Is because you know, in you know, probably the first whole half of my career, I was really leaning into it hard, right? I wanted to kill it, and once I realized that you know I can just help the customer get what they want, I didn't have to think so hard. I didn't have to push so hard. I could just kind of go back in and see where it would go. I would walk into a situation, blank slate, not worrying about my agenda, just seeing how, and good Lord, I, not only did I sell way more, it was so much more satisfying. I got to the point where my client, I would sell the same client three times. They would, they'd go to work at this company and then they'd buy my stuff. And then they'd go to work at another company and then they'd buy my stuff. And then they'd go to another company and they'd buy it again. All, that doesn't happen unless you actually authentically care about producing results. That, why, that, the reason that was happening is because they knew that I backed it, right? Because they were working with me, they knew that I promised whatever result I was promising they were going to get because I would make sure that it happened. And you'll get to the point if you do that, you get to the point where you almost don't have time to prospect because your customers will be feeding you so many other customers that you won't have time to do it. And I used to literally give my leads to other salespeople and they would think I was like Santa Claus, right? And the truth is what I was doing was giving them the low probability ones so that I could just continue to work the higher probability ones that are all getting referred. And that is just the sweet spot of selling. It's very satisfying. It's very lucrative. I am one of those people that believes that good people with resources is a good thing in this world. I I honestly believe that. And so the goal is let's get all the good people, all the resources, right? So they can do good stuff with with that money. That's honestly how I feel. Tell me this, which books or podcasts or uh, videos have really had a profound influence on you that you'd recommend other people in the sales profession pay attention to? Sure. Well, as far as authors go, right at the top of the list is uh, Napoleon Hill. I read Think and Grow Rich every single year. I probably read The Law of Success maybe every other year which is a little, if you, a lot of people have heard of Think and Grow Rich, but not many people know about The Law of Success, which is considerably bigger. But both are phenomenal and life-changing if you haven't. So that would probably be my first recommendation for anybody on in terms of uh, authors. Um, my book itself is dedicated to an author named Mahan Khalsa. And he wrote a book uh, right around the 2000, 1999, somewhere like that, called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And you Absolutely. can probably tell from the title, but he, he's the one that really taught me that intent matters more than technique does. That's but, really interesting because his brother was the guy who got me into my last company. I absolutely agree, fabulous book. But uh, Ganesha, his brother, uh, was the guy who uh, really kick-started my career. So it's fascinating that we... Yeah, ironic. But I I really, I I mean, I owe a lot of... He's the one that turned the light bulb for me on. When I was saying I was leaning into it, and then at that point I realized, no, there's there's more of a Zen-like way that you can do all of this, and it's much more satisfying. That's where I really I learned that. And so my book's dedicated to him for that reason. Big fan of Stephen Covey. As far as podcasts and uh, maybe other authors that are in the space or trainers, Mike Weinberg, fantastic. Uh, we talked about management today. His book, Sales Management Simplified, really great. Absolutely um, fantastic. Victor Antonio, he's in Atlanta, Georgia. That guy, um, 
he's my model, man. Uh, you know, when you're when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to figure out how to do it right, I think he's doing it right. So he's uh, he's phenomenal. Um, Mark Hunter, uh, I think that you would get along with Anthony Anarino very well. Yeah. No, he's been, I, I had him on the podcast last year. He was very good. And yeah. and Mike. Jeb Blunt, one, he, he runs in that same circle. That guy, that's the hardest working man in sales, hands down. <laughs> hands down. On your best day, you're not even working 10% as hard as that guy's working. He is a machine. I got to, until you see it up close and personal, you just can't really appreciate how phenomenal <laughs> that guy is. He is totally inspiring. Anyway, so those are some I might recommend. Fantastic. Thank you. How can people get hold of you? Sure. Probably the best way is uh, the website. It's puremuir.com. It's P-U-R-E-M-U-I-R.com. I had to do that because people had a hard time pronouncing my, my four-letter last name. So <laughs> probably probably in the UK, it's not as hard because it's a Scottish name, right? So uh, people know what it is, but that's the best. And, and honestly, uh, I think almost everything we talked about today, you can download for free off of my website. If you just go to the resources page, there's a super bundle there. It includes all the models of the perfect clothes. We talked about maybe three of those today. Uh, it includes, um, you know, planning forms and a mind map and actually the first three chapters of the book, all, all this stuff, just one big, big download, you get it all. And so that's probably the best, but I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you want to find me there and connect with there, I'm totally happy to connect there. Twitter is, uh, it's, it's a B2B underscore sales tips is my uh, handle. And if you want to see my personal stuff, you're welcome to connect with me on Facebook, your call, right? I'm totally happy to do that too. But all, all those are, if you need to email me, you can just go to my LinkedIn profile and it, my email addresses are sitting right in the profile. So it's not hard to find me. Excellent. James Mia, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Great experience, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with James, then you've got his contact details. If you want to get in contact with me, then my email is marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com or via LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch and connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.